Hello and welcome to our third edition of the Lost in Science Summer Series, where we once again return to Laboratory recorded live at Melbourne's Spotted Mallard, where we hear from scientists and science enthusiasts about their science heroes. This week we have Arjun Chalal talking about the immortal Henrietta Lacks, and Jessica Sneer will fill us in on the hybrid constructions of Ilya Ivanovich Ivanov. When I was first asked to speak at Laboratory, I instantly knew the two people who I wanted to talk about. Thomas Hunt Morgan, who established the first Drosophila genetics lab in Columbia University in 1909, or Barbara McClintock, whose work on research uh, investigating the birthplace of the ribosome, or as it's known in the field, the ribosome, um, is so crucial to my own PhD. Unfortunately, one Thomas, not Thomas, one Jack Scanlon beat me to not one, but both um, topics that I wanted to talk about and working on the idea that great minds think alike, he must be an absolute genius. <laughs> but every cloud does have its silver lining. Actually having to think about who I respected in science unearthed this gem of a story. Tonight I'll tell the story of Henrietta Lacks and her crucial, albeit unknowing, role in the development of an extremely important technique known as cell culture. What makes this story so interesting is that Henrietta was not a professor or a doctor or a researcher of any capacity. She dropped out of school after the sixth grade, worked on a tobacco plantation, and had her first child at the age of 14. Yet one could argue that her contribution to biology is as important as that of any Nobel Prize winner, if not more so. Just get the shakes out a little bit. Uh, Henrietta Lacks was born Loretta Pleasant in a shack in Roanoke, Virginia on August 1st, 1920. The eighth of 10 children, her childhood was nothing out of the ordinary for a black girl living in America in the early half of the 20th century. Even back then, there were the universal trials and tribulations of youth that we can all relate to. Doing chores, daydreaming about boys, and avoiding the stones white children would throw at you as you walk past their nice school to the coloured school down the road. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of you might find this surprising, but being black in the United States, especially the southern part, meant you were pretty much guaranteed to have a bad time. Segregation was in full swing, meaning whites and coloureds had separate schools, separate sections on the train, at the movies, and even separate hospitals. While this was a particularly terrible chapter in human history, it is doubtful modern science or medicine would be where it is today were it not for the ethical abominations of the past. The past, jeez. So, whew, fast forward to January 29th, 1951, where a 31-year-old Henrietta is bringing, being driven the 20 miles from her house to John Hopkins Hospital by her husband, David. They're not heading to John Hopkins because of its sterling medical reputation, but because it is the closest hospital that will treat black patients. Whites-only hospitals would turn away blacks at the door, no matter how urgent their need. Henrietta is there because over the course of a year and a pregnancy, she's been feeling a knot in her womb. Even after the doctors had kindly mansplained to her that it was simply a difficult pregnancy, Henrietta knew otherwise. Her worst fears were confirmed four and a half months after the birth of her fifth child, when she started spotting and it wasn't her time of the month. Her local doctor examined her and found the bump Henrietta knew was there. But... Being an ill-educated medical doctor and not a genius doctor of philosophy, he assumed it was a symptom of syphilis. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, David Lax was handing out bouts of syphilis as regular, regularly as the mighty Geelong Cats hand out thrashings to opposition teams. But I digress. But I digress. When the test results came back negative for syphilis, the doctor referred Henrietta to the gynecology clinic at Johns Hopkins. The gynecologist on duty that shift, Howard Jones, examined the lump and described it as such an eroded hard mass about the size of a nickel. If her cervix was a clock's face, the lump was at four o'clock. Shiny and purple like grape jelly, and so delicate it bled at the slightest touch. 
Jones removed a sample of the tumor for diagnosis and told Henrietta to go home. Jones had seen thousands of cervical tumors before. Um, but, and I quote him on this from his case notes, none like this. What a ladies' man. <laughs> In the 1950s, doctors thought there were two different kinds of cervical cancer. An invasive malignant carcinoma that penetrated into the cervix and a non-invasive benign kind that grows as a sheet on its surface, giving it its more common name of sugar icing carcinoma. Many doctors assumed the sugar icing cancer couldn't spread and didn't bother to treat it, whereas the invasive kind was greeted with the same kind of burn the house down before it can lay eggs attitude most of us have towards spiders. <laughs> However, one man thought that the invasive and non-invasive tumours were just different life stages of the same cancer and was willing to ruffle some feathers to prove he was right. And what was the name of this man, you ask? Emilio Estevez, the mighty duck man himself. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't him. That was a lie, I'm sorry. It's just too good to say it. The man in question was Howard Jones's boss, Richard Wesley Talindi, or Uncle Dick, as he was more affectionately known. A giant in the field of gynecology and a daredevil on the skating rink until an accident left him with a limp, just like Coach Gordon Bombay. The 56-year-old Talindi pioneered the use of estrogen for treating menopause, initiated early research into endometriosis, and was the only man allowed to touch the Queen of Morocco's royal baby maker when she fell gravely ill. Men wanted to be him, women wanted to be examined by him. Talindi's idea was that cervical cancer started as a non-invasive sugar icing carcinoma and progressed into the more invasive type, which turned out to be true. However, at the time, this was extremely hard to prove. The ability to diagnose sugar icing carcinomas had only been achieved by George Papanicolaou. <laughs> I meant to check the pronunciation of that beforehand, but I don't have many Greek friends. Um, and his eponymous pap smear 10 years prior. The pap smear allowed early detection of precancerous cells, and this simple check had the potential to save 70% of the 15,000 women who died from cervical cancer each year. However, barely any women asked for one of these. I don't know why. And even if they did, many doctors struggled to interpret the results of these tests, resulting in perfectly healthy women receiving hysterectomies, while those at risk were sent home with aspirin, only to return months later with the metastasizing tumors. As such, there was no data to support Talindi's hypothesis, but if he was right, the ramifications for women's health would be huge. Talindi proposed his radical idea at a pathology conference and was literally heckled off stage. I like to imagine him storming off yelling, fine, I'll do my own research with blackjack and hookers. Uh, and anyone who was well acquainted with the dick measuring competition that is research and academia knows that this heckling was like showing red to a bull. Talindi returned to Johns Hopkins determined to prove he was right. But the question was how? The idea, um, I missed that part. The question was how? The only way was if he could take living samples of both types of carcinomas and grow them in the lab. That way he could observe their behavior, and if both the invasive and non-invasive forms behaved the same way, he could have the biggest I told you so moment in the history of gynecology. Now all he had to do was solve one of the biggest biological questions of the 20th century. Oh, hi, other side of the room. I've been very centric on this side. Uh, the idea of growing cells wasn't a new one. Researchers had been trying and failing to grow cells outside of the body since the early 1900s. However, no one thought it was possible until Alexis Carell and his infamous chicken heart cells made news around the world on January 17, 1912. Um, Carell was already famous for his groundbreaking work on suturing blood vessels together and used this technique to perform the first coronary bypass surgery, which won him the 1912 Nobel Prize for Medicine. He envisaged filling entire labs with organs he had grown and shipping them to those in need around the world. And he took the first steps towards this dream by taking a sliver of chicken heart and, quite miraculously, keeping its cells alive and beating in a dish of liquid nutrients for a remarkable 34 years. However, 
Carell was what I like to call the Kanye West of the cell culture world. He seems like an absolute genius, but he opens his mouth and you just go, mm. <laughs> Turns out Carell was a staunch eugenicist who wanted to grow organs to preserve the purity of the white race and thought Hitler was a, quote, all-around top bloke. He would make his lab assistant sing Happy Birthday to the Chicken Heart every January 17th and would somewhat ironically, or I guess more realistically, be outlived by his immortal chicken heart as he died while awaiting trial for collaborating with the Nazis. Also, it turns out that the media he used to feed his cells contained ground-up chicken heart tissue, explaining how the cells continued to live for so many years. Um, but probably worst of all, I saw a picture of him and he actually looks like one of the Nazis from Raiders of the Lost Ark. It is that, that guy with the weird plastic glove. Was, yeah. So, back to, back to the story. Talindi needed to grow these cells, but had no clue how to do it. Q. George and Margaret Guy, a husband and wife science duo who've been trying and failing to grow human cancer cells to study for the last three decades. In return for their help to grow both types of carcinomas, Talindi would provide the guys with a never-ending source of cancer cells for their research. And where would he get these cells? From black patients. Johns Hopkins provided their medical services for free and felt entitled to use patients and their tissues for their research without their consent or knowledge. Remember that, that's an important part of the story. It'll be on the test. So, George and Margaret Guy were the original odd couple. George had the build of a retired linebacker, survived many a homebrew explosion, and would regularly eat 12 ears of corn in one sitting. I kid you not, 12 ears. That is ridiculous. He was a stereotypical scientific renaissance man, jerry-rigging machines and contraptions that have become staples of labs around the world today. Um, Margaret had been trained as a surgical nurse and would have been diagnosed with clinical OCD when it came to her levels of cleanliness and sterility in the lab. This was in an age where it wasn't uncommon to eat your lunch at the lab bench by having a cheeky post-lunch smoke. Things that wouldn't fly in this day and age, although some heroes still respect these time-honored traditions. Not naming names. Um... And we get back to our heroine, Henrietta Lacks. With her test results confirming she had cervical cancer, Henrietta was recalled to Johns Hopkins for treatment. Prior to receiving treatment, the doctor removed two small tissue samples, one cancerous and one healthy, and sent them to the Guy Laboratory. Once that was done, he proceeded with the treatment, which involved artfully arranging three tubes of radioactive vials in and around Henrietta's cervix with such Tetris-like skills that she required a catheter to urinate. The second round of radiation treatment, so harsh that it bet Henrietta's walnut skin the colour of tar, was deemed a success. Apart from the discomforting side effect that three weeks after starting treatment, Henrietta's urine came out feeling like broken glass. Her husband David was also complaining of a strange discharge and accused Henrietta of giving him some kind of sickness from the hospital. Doctors were confused at first, but Howard Jones was quick to diagnose Henrietta with acute gonorrhea superimposed on radioactive reaction. Because when you think your life can't get any worse, your husband tells you nothing is impossible and gives you gonorrhea. I won't go into any more depressing detail, but Henrietta's treatment was ultimately unsuccessful. In early June, several months after radiation treatment had begun, Henrietta attended Johns Hopkins complaining of discomfort in her abdomen. X-rays showed a tumour attached to her pelvic wall that was so big it was almost completely obstructing her urethra, and the doctors deemed it inoperable. Henrietta's condition swiftly declined, and she was admitted to hospice care. New tumours seemed to spring up daily on her lymph nodes, her bladder, her lungs and no treatment was sufficient to treat her pain. At 12.15am on the 4th of October 1951, less than 10 months after her initial diagnosis, Henrietta Lacks died. Or did she? No, she, she did die. I, we were all very emotionally attached to her now. I, I, it's like Jon Snow all over again. I, 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 I panicked, I panicked. 
So, Henrietta Lacks, the person had died. That's true. It's, it's, I, I don't like to make light of a person dying, but she had died. But the samples of her tumour, <clears throat> the ones that had been collected pre-treatment, had survived. Well, survived was an understatement. They had thrived and were growing like weeds. Mary Kubasek, the guy's lab assistant, had sectioned the tissue into, tissue into millimetre square pieces, placed them onto a pillow of chicken's blood clot in a tube labelled Healer for Henrietta Lacks, and covered the Frankensteinian mix with several drops of culture media, a liquid used to feed cells, before placing these tubes into an incubator. She had done this so many times before for no result that by this point I imagine her having the same dead look on her face as anyone who works at Centrelink. Imagine her surprise when two days later there was enough cells in the tubes that they were visible to the human eye. She started dividing the tube's contents into two, then four, then eight tubes a day, with the cells doubling their number every 24 hours at a rate 20 times faster than that of normal tissue. The guys had finally done it. Cell culture had been achieved. But what do you do with cells that are multiplying faster than you can find storage for them? George Guy's solution? The cells were his Benjamin Franklin's and he was up in the club. He literally made it rain cells. <laughs> Visitors to the lab received vials to take back to their home laboratories. And if the cells died on the way, Guy simply sent two more vials in their place. In death, Henrietta Lacks had probably the sickest gap year of all time, with Guy shipping her cells to Amsterdam, Texas, India, Europe, and everywhere in between. Healer cells traversed the Chilean mountains in mule saddlebags and soared gracefully through the air in the pockets of pilots, with their body heat acting as natural incubators for the cells. Guy's willingness to share both the cells and the sterile techniques and cell media recipes is not only refreshing given the state of collaboration in science today, but is the reason cell culture took off in such a big way. By providing the cells and optimal protocols for their use, Guy effectively standardised cell culture techniques, allowing labs from all over the world to compare results with each other. But why were these cells so prized, I hear you ask? These cells opened up vast new avenues of research for scientists that would never be justifiable on humans. Healer cells were chopped open, irradiated, exposed to drugs and chemicals, injected into immunocompromised mice to see what their effects would be. Healer cells were instrumental in developing Jonas Salk's polio vaccine, not his virus, his vaccine, that would not only improve the quality of life for whole generations, but save countless of monkeys from animal testing. Healer cells advance our knowledge of cryogenics, of radiation poisoning, of the number of chromosomes a human cell contains. They have been fathoms below the surface of the ocean and shot up into space to see how human cells respond to these extreme conditions. The list goes on and on. When you search for healer cells on PubMed, a central repository for medical research articles, you get 88,809 hits. By comparison, James, Francis and James Watts and Francis Crick of DNA fame, everyone knows there's a bit of controversy, but whatever, DNA fame yield about 250 apiece. On the other end of the spectrum, when you search for my name, you get news articles about a man being asked to leave a local McDonald's for not wearing shoes. But again, I digress, which is what I am so want to do. There's a, there's a point to this, I promise. Soon enough, people started asking where Guy had procured these miraculous cells. Despite the unethical and unconsenting manner in which the cells had been taken, both Guy and Talindi uh, respected patient confidentiality. As interest grew, a fictional Helen Lane was used in place of Henrietta. If the Lacks family had even heard of these cells, there was no way that they would make a connection between them and their lost mother. At least not until the scientific world absolutely rubbed their faces in it. As technology advanced to the point where we could map the specific locations of genes on chromosomes, geneticists needed more information on the healer cells that were helping uncover these mysteries. With the original donor long gone, they turned to her family to collect more genetic material. Imagine the shock of being told that your mother, who you thought had been dead for 23 years, was still alive, floating around in millions of dishes across the world, been subjected to poisons, chemicals, and all other kinds of torture. That is what happened to Deborah Lacks, daughter of Henrietta, on a fateful day in 1974. To make matters worse, the companies that Guy had helped establish to mass-produce healer cells and the equipment and media needed for their growth were making millions of dollars, 
while the Lax family couldn't even afford health insurance. To be fair, neither Guy nor Talindia made a single dollar off healer cells, but I don't need to spell out how bad it looked for white men to be profiting off the buying and selling of a black woman's cells. The case of Henrietta Lacks raised all kinds of questions about ownership of genetic material and bioethics. The surviving Lacks family members grew tired of the constant questions and requests for samples from researchers and retreated from the public eye, wanting little to do with the media or the science fields until recently. There is a silver lining. Things are finally starting to look up for the Lacks family. They successfully lobbied for the rights to the genome of HeLa cells, which was publicly and freely available before. Researchers wanting to access it now have to seek permission, and scientific papers must acknowledge their use. Um, in my opinion, it's a weak bit of lip service, but at least it's a start. But these times, they are changing. And just this past Monday, it was announced that Oprah, yes, the Oprah, would be playing the role of Deborah Lax in The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lax, a HBO movie based on the book of the same, of the same name. <laughs> For those of you interested in finding out more about Henrietta's story, I highly recommend it, although I'm pretty sure I've plagiarized all the best bits tonight. Um, I also really hope at the movie premiere someone, some marketing genius to strap bars of healer cells under everyone's seat. And you get some cells! And you get some cells! Everyone gets some cells! Ah. In this talk, I've mentioned two scientists who are worthy of being anyone's science hero. George Guy was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer at age 70. With surgery his last option, he left strict instructions with his lab to collect samples of his cancer in the hopes that if this cancer did kill him, the least it could do was help advance science in the process. Imagine his fury when he woke up to be told the cancer had metastasized so heavily that cutting into any of it would have killed him and no samples were taken. He spent the remaining three months on this earth volunteering his body for medical research and experimental drug trials, a true hero to the end. Richard Wesley Talindi, aka coach Gordon Bombay, was such an expert in his field that a book he wrote in the 70s is still considered required reading for gyne gynecological residents today and is currently in its 10th edition. His observations and research into cervical cancer continues to save thousands of lives a year, but both pale in comparison to the ultimate contribution of Henrietta Lacks to the field of cell biology. I hope after tonight she's as much your hero as she is mine. Thanks. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. I'm going to be talking about a scientist who's got one hell of a name. You're going to all be really impressed. And uh, one hell of a story to match. So his name is get it, Ilya Ivanovich Ivanov. Like, I'm not joking. That's his name. I chose it because that's his name. I didn't actually know what he did. I just chose it because it said scientist on Wikipedia and, and his name. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, honestly, his parents were definitely sadistic because that, that's child abuse. Anyway, off the name because I'm going to rant all night. So just to give you a little bit of an idea because uh, not good with technology, don't have any PowerPoints. So what did this guy look like? So he looked kind of like, like a hypothetical love child of Charles Darwin, good-looking guy, and uh, KFC's Colonel Sanders. Kind of looked like, yeah. And um, it's actually quite fitting because uh, his two pet hobbies were evolutionary theory, got Darwin on that one, and uh, animal cruelty. That's another one of his uh, pet hobbies. So Ivanov was a Russian biologist. I know I was also very shocked to find out his Russian heritage from his name. And uh, he was born in 1870 in the town of Shigri, Russia. There was more to that, but I'm going to stick with Shigri, Russia. 
and he graduated from the Kharkov University to become a full professor in 1907. And so he worked for numerous different places. He worked for the, I'm going to just read it off because there's a lot of stuff, the State Experimental Veterinary Institute, the Central Experimental Station for Researching Reproduction of Domestic Animals. They've got to make that into an acronym. I mean, that's just too much breath. And uh, the Moscow Higher Zootechnic Institute. So I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that his uh, niche area of science was animal experimentation. So around the start of the 20th century, Ivanov perfected his method of artificial insemination. So not artificial intelligence, AI, but artificial insemination. So in particular, he put this to use in Russia for horse breeding, which was uh, really big there, really big here, but don't do it, don't go. Anyway, okay. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so, so he made his technology and very, very, very impressive. So he, from one stallion, which is a castrated, a non-castrated um, male horse, and um, he was able to fertilise 500 mares. Like, that's, a, that's some potent virility right there. I mean, Genghis Khan, nothing, nothing on this kid. Anyway, so these results were sensational and word spread. And Ivanov's technique of, artific of, of artificial insemination, I was going to say intelligence, but no, insemination, um, spread across the world and horse breeders used it all over. So, so far he's not really a villain. He's a pretty, pretty decent guy. Got his weird niche, but like who doesn't? And um, so once he had artificial insemination under his belt for within one species, what he did is he went on to pioneer artificial intelligence interspecies, as you do, you know? So he went on to produce various hybrid animals. So we've got things like the zebra donkey. So that's either the, uh, the zonkey, which sounds good, or Debra, but I'm just, <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to apologise to uh, all the Debras in the room. I sincerely apologise, but... It's Wikipedia, I, I can't do anything. And um, the other one that he made was the rat mouse. The rat and the mouse. Yeah, that, all right, you can do that. Um, and that was known as the rouse or mat. And again, I know it's a very common name and I'm going to apologise. I'm really sorry. Condolences. Uh, you share your name with a hybrid rat mouse. Yeah. Um, and the last one was the antelope cow. So... That was known as the antelau or cantaloupe. So I think, uh, I think we might stick with antelau because I really like cantaloupe and I don't really want to be thinking about the hybrid when I'm having my melon ball salad. All right. So to be honest, when I was thinking about this, you know, he's, he's got horse breeding down pat. And so I was thinking, look, if you're really into horse breeding and then you go into hybrid animals, why not the unicorn? Like... I mean, why don't you just make the dreams of all little... I was going to say girls, but no, little any people and, and big people. I mean, unicorns, come on. So, but, you know, he did have an explanation and it turns out that rainbows and horses, they're not a good genetic match, which is surprising, but it's, it's true. Yeah, and glitter. He tried glitter, it didn't work either. Um, so, even though I didn't stop there, he now turned his attention to his most 
radical and controversial experiment yet. And uh, that was the creation of the human-ape hybrid. Yeah, no, this is a real person. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, he was watching Planet of the Apes and, you know, one thing led to the other, even though this was in 1920. Chrono chronology doesn't really come into play when it comes to our comedy. And um, so this was known as the human Z or the Tuman. No, no, I'm not going to, no. Or the man pansy. No, I'm going to, again, Antelau and human Z. So it's a hypothetical chimpanzee-human hybrid. And chimpanzees, uh, this is where the science comes in, uh, so they've got 99% of uh, the same coding DNA and 99% of, of the same co coding DNA sequences, 95% of the non-coding DNA sequences in common with humans. So that's pretty compatible. So therefore, the contested speculation about um, a hybrid possibility was... Um, you know, quite founded. Um, and so what Ivanov did in, the in 1910 is he presented to the World Congress of Zoologists. Good on him. That's very impressive. And um, that was in Austria, Graz. And, <laughs> and there he described uh, the possibility of obtaining such a hybrid through his perfected technique of artificial intelligence. So 14 years later, I've done my research, got all the numbers down pat. Uh, 1924, he obtained permission from the Pasteur Institute in Paris to use, its, to use his experiment, to use their experimental primate station in French Guinea. Uh, it's actually not New Guinea, it's in Africa. I had, I had to look that up, but it's okay. Like, and um, so he saw backing, because, you know, you need money. So he saw backing from the Academy of Sciences. And he got US $10,000. <laughs> Pretty good. Is that just me? Uh, I thought you guys were meant to be nice, because, like, I've got a fear of public speaking. But, all right. Cheer. Cheer. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so $10,000, and, like, we're talking about the 1920s, so I'm quite good at maths, so if you take the one and you carry it, and, um, you take into account, uh, I've got, a, I've got a brother in stock market, so, yeah, you take into account inflation, and, um, that comes to one trillion dollars. No, it doesn't, you're all idiots, no, it doesn't, but it's a lot of money, it's a lot of money. And um, so here, Ivanov, in, in Africa, he artificially inseminated three female chimpanzees with human semen. So, I mean, I wasn't there. I'm not, I'm not claiming to be there because I'm uh, quite a young chicken. But um, I would have thought... Sorry about this. I, wasn't, I didn't want to speak to the sound guy late notice. But um, I thought he would be playing this. Tell me when you want to stop, because I'm going to... Okay. Did you guys get it? Yeah, okay. Um, so, so, yeah, so he was playing that. This is in the records, but anyway, whatever. Like, it was secret information. But so he was playing that, but despite the sexy background music, which is potent, like, it's probably more potent sexually 
you know, virility, but in the sort of, you know, virile. Is that a word? Virile? I don't know. Um, anyway, so despite the sexy music, all three attempts actually failed to cause pregnancy. So that's a, that's a really big loss for Ivanov, but a really big win for humanity. <laughs> so Ivanov later returned to the Soviet Union. I don't know why he would return to the Soviet Union, but he did. And uh, he designed a new set of experiments, this time involving non-human ape sperm, well, obviously non-human ape sperm, and uh, human volunteers, yeah, human volunteers. Do you want me to rewind? Human volunteers. <laughs> and so what I'd like to do is, uh, you know, don't, don't be shy, don't be shy. I'd just like to get a show of hands, come on, guys, uh, of the people who would you know, willingly uh, be inseminated with ape sperm um, with no financial remuneration, difficult word, um, all in the name of science. So, come on, guys. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 don't be shy. Uh, okay, so I've got, I've got, uh, yeah, I've got the zero over here and a zero over here and a zero. Okay, I've got no one, no one putting up their hand. So, so, Look, I think it's probably just Australians that are really prudy. I think that's what it is. Because even though I've had no, no trouble at all getting volunteers, you know, in Russia, I, I, I'm not going to say anything because there's probably Russians in the room. But the reason that the experiment didn't go ahead wasn't the lack of volunteers. It was actually just that the last experimental orangutan died. So they were just like, all right, that's it, we're done. So, <laughs> so for his um, expensive failure to, you know, ten, $1 trillion, a lot of money. So for his expensive failure to produce an eight-man hybrid, Ivanov was sentenced to five years of jail. All right, so imagine that. So, uh, you know, you're in prison. What are you in for? What, do, what are you in for? I murder, yeah, okay. Um, what are you in for? Okay, so what's on your statement? All right, so we've got um, sentence duration, five years, all right. Crime committed. Failing to produce an ape-man hybrid. Okay, Russia, okay. Um, and upon his release, he was exiled to the homeland of Borat and the Mankini, the one and only Kazakhstan. So there he died of a stroke at uh, aged 61 and his obituary was given by the famous psychologist Ivan Pavlov. God, these names, honestly. So they shared a love of the letter V. Strong bond, strong bond. And uh, also uh, controversial animal experimentation. They had that bond also. So the story actually doesn't end there. We're going to fast forward and uh, we get to a decade ago. So New, when, New York, when New York and Russian archives revealed details of Ivanov's uh, attempts to create a human-ape hybrid in the 1920s, it became interna like international headlines. You know, media, they sens sensationalise everything, and this is, like, legit. So they ate this shit up. So questions began to arise. You know, you've got... And these are legit. Why had the Bolshevik... Russian government financed Ivanov's weird experiments, expensive experiments. And also, why would they sanction him to leave the country and go to New, 
not New Guinea, French Guinea, in Africa, when hardly any Russians were allowed to leave at the time in the 1920s. So, you know, I mean, they're Russian after all, so, like, what's in it for them? What are they getting out of it? Very sus. Very sus. So, naturally, conspiracy theories began to uh, brew. So, University of Cat, this is where my uh, research skills get quite good. Um, University of Cambridge specialist in Russian history, Alexander Etkin, he wrote in a recent journal entitled Beyond Eugenics, I've, The Forgotten Scandal of Hybridizing Humans and Apes. Etkin, Etkin said that uh, Ivanov put his proposal to authorities, and the way that he painted, the way that he sold it to the authorities, you know, he's got his board and everything. Um, so what he said is that the experiments would actually prove that man had evolved from apes, right? All right. So if you cross an ape and a human and it produced a viable offspring, then that would prove that, you know, Darwin's got a point. We're pretty closely related if we can mate and produce, you know, a decent offspring. So, you know, if, that, if, if, if Ivanov could prove Darwin right, then that would be a huge blow to religion in general. And in the 1920s, Russia you know, they wanted to put religion under the, under the rug, swipe it under. So that's one to think about, okay? Keep, keep it there. So it wasn't only the Bolshevik Russian government that financed Ivanov's experiments. Evkind says that when news of Ivanov's plans um, to make a human hybrid, you get it by now, um, reached US shores in the 1920s, the American Association of Advanced Atheism announced its fundraising campaign to support the project. So all their honey joys, rice, paper crispies, all of that went to fund Ivanov's experiment. Alrighty. So the plot thickens. I'll be done soon, don't worry. Um, so according to a report by the Scotsman newspaper on 20th December 2005, again, excellent reporting skills. Dates, time, everything. Um, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin mm, wanted to rebuild the Red Army because, you know, it was a good army uh, in the mid-1920s <laughs> mid with Planet of the Apes-style troops. Who wouldn't? And again, I'm pretty sure he watched Planet of the Apes because, like, anyway. Um, so the report claimed that Stalin ordered Russia's top uh, animal breeding scientist who, what's his name? Yeah, like, I don't remember it either. I have it on the page. So it's Ivanov. I know it's difficult. Um, so he got Ivanov uh, to produce his eight-man super warrior. So that's another theory. Stalin is said to have told Ivanov, quote, I want an invincible human being, insensitive to pain, resistant and indifferent about the quality of food they ate, unquote. Okay, that's a difficult brief, Stalin. I mean, Joe, come on, you've got to give a man a break. But, look, I, I do get it. You know, you've, you just had the election. You've got education's pretty important in the budget. You've got health, you know. So, I mean, military budget, like, well, I mean, we spend all our money on the submarines. But, like, look, normally, for normal countries, you know, military budget struggles. So, he just really wanted to cut the costs of pain meds and catering. For, for, you know, for the military. So, like, I understand. I, I, I get it. Like, we can't be so harsh on politicians. Um, so, just to conclude, so was Ivanov's attempt to create a human ape 
hybrid? Was it pro-Stalin? Was it anti-God? Or was it just like really expensive monkey business done in the 1920s? I guess we ne we'll never really know. But um, before I leave, and uh, you guys, I know you've, you've all been like writing and like not listening to me, but like before you, you know, can actually write, um, I'd just like to let you know that I've got a call today and there are um, openings for volunteers because we are starting up new studies. So I know you were all really shy to put up your hands, but like discreetly, I'll be at the bar, just come and if, if you want to volunteer, you know, just, just let me know. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.